Hello, you're listening to the Tea Leaves podcast brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner here at the Asia Group and one of your co-hosts. And I'm Sherian. I'm an anchor at Bloomberg Television's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. And for our listeners and viewers, welcome back to the Tea Leaves podcast. Sherry and I are picking up where Kurt Campbell and Rich Verma left off as each of them have transitioned to new adventures, Rich with MasterCard, and Kurt as the top U.S. official developing U.S. strategy for the Indo-Pacific at the White House for President Biden. Sherry, it's a real delight to team up with you. I am looking forward to bringing our listeners an ongoing conversation about the Indo-Pacific region with government officials, business leaders, artists, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders. Yeah, we're very excited to be doing this. We will try to introduce you to a very diverse lineup of guests with various backgrounds, with a wealth of knowledge and expertise on some of the critical issues that's driving the Indo-Pacific region. So this is a real treat for us, too, to be able to really carry out this conversation, Rexon. Sherry, thanks. Look, we're here now in early April, and I feel as if life has entered a new phase. We're emerging here in the United States from a cold winter. Vaccines are giving us hope that we may overcome COVID soon. Politics in the United States has turned a page with a new U.S. administration. There's optimism about economic recovery, travel, seeing friends and family in person, just to name a few. So let's add to that list the launch of Tea Leaves 2.0. I thought in our first episode as co-hosts that we might use time to share with our listeners and viewers a little bit about ourselves, our background, our perspectives on the Indo-Pacific, and some of the topics we might cover over the coming weeks and months. We are here calling in from the East Coast, but both of our stories really begin back in Asia. And in fact, we have a shared Korean heritage, though each with a twist. Sherry, let me start asking you a, a question or two. You spent the first part of your life not living in Korea, not living in the United States, but living in Bolivia. Tell us a little bit about that background, your childhood, what brought your parents there, and what were your experiences like? Rexon, thank you so much for that. My parents are Korean, but I was raised in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. So I spent my childhood there. And for our listeners and viewers, my accent is really difficult to play. So I've actually had Several people try to place my accent, whether it's in English or in Korean or in Spanish, because I grew up in this mix of languages, speaking Spanglish with my parents or with my brother. I went to an international school, um, but at the same time, I grew up in Bolivia, but I spent my 20s in Japan as well. So all of my best friends are Japanese. I went to college in Korea, so... I my first couple of jobs were in Korea. Then I lived in Hong Kong and just covered Asia for the past 13 years or so. And now I'm here in New York and very excited to be here. It's an incredibly interesting background, Sherry. And you speak not one, not two. How how many languages do you I want to say (laughs) 3.5 because I would love to say that I speak good Japanese, and I did Uh when I lived there for five years, but I I don't get to speak it very much. And I've been told that if you speak Japanese and you speak Korean, you know, the language structure and the accent, it messes up with your English even more. So Mm -hmm. I've been trying to refrain myself from speaking any other language than English, actually. 
Mm -hmm. And your childhood in Bolivia as a Korean, your parents brought you there as a family. What are some of the fragments, the memories you have growing up there in you know Bolivian society, Bolivian culture, but also kind of within the family context of Korean heritage? I loved growing up in Bolivia. It, it was a great time. And it's really interesting that when I was growing up in Bolivia, I didn't necessarily realize that I looked different or that I was Korean. We were asked by our parents to speak Korean at home. We were disciplined when we didn't. And I had uh, my share of, you know, kids teasing me, calling me Chinita because it means, mm -hmm. you know, Chinese girl. And I'm saying, no, I'm not Chinita. <laughs> my parents are Korean. Um, but to be honest, I didn't necessarily feel out of place. And I think it wasn't until I lived and went to college in Korea that I realized, wait, all of these people look like me. And this older lady in, in the traditional Korean markets looks like my mom. I think it wasn't until I actually went to Korea that it hit me that, you know, I have a Korean background and I feel very comfortable uh, speaking Korean. But my childhood in Bolivia, my parents really wanted to keep that alive. So at home, we had to speak Korean. Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to speak Spanish with my brother at home. So that was uh, quite an experience. And I remember going back to Korea and speaking Korean with everybody else with a very heavy accent, obviously, because I didn't, I only spoke Korean with my parents. And, you know, the way that you speak to your parents and your family members is not as hierarchical mm -hmm. as a Korean language can be. So that took me a very long time to understand, which in a way also helped when I moved to Japan, because Japanese even is even more hierarchical in the language. If you have Spanish and you go from, you know, very casual to voice and then you go stead and it's like a bit more, a bit higher, uh, more degree of respect, Korean has even more, right? And then Japanese has even more than that, than mm -hmm. Korean even. So I think in that sense, it helped me sort of understand how to switch between cultures and adapt to the different environments that I was exposed to. As you moved back in your teens or 20s to Korea and Japan, do you have memories of the transition of, of challenges of, you, you know, you mentioned a little bit of your realization of your sort of Asian roots, but did it manifest in other ways that you've brought with you over the course of your career? Yeah, so I think the language was the hardest part. And I tried so hard when I went back to Korea to try to straighten my Korean so it wouldn't sound as foreign and trying to understand the different hierarchies. And also the way that you even deal with other friends that are only a year or two years older than you, it's not the same as you would do in Western culture where everybody's just your friend, right? Or is the same level of the same language that you speak to your friends. You can't really do that with anybody who's even a year older than you. And everything goes when you first meet. And the first thing that they ask is, how old are you? <laughs> so you have to disclose your age, what grade you're in in school. And I think it's the same thing in Japan as well. In Japan, it, it's even, you know, you go somewhere and you go to a restaurant and you're with um, other colleagues. And 
you can't sit anywhere that you want. You have to sit in specific mm -hmm. places depending on sort of where you are within that group. So whether you sit farther from the door or closer to the window, it all depends on the social uh, situation. So I think in that sense, just the transition to Korea was very helpful. The transition to Japan was very helpful trying to understand all of those differences. But I'm, I'm going to uh, switch this to you, Rexon, because I know that You've also uh, grown up in a little bit of a Korean household. I understand that your mm -hmm. father is Korean, right? Did you also experience that, what I'm talking about? Yeah, no, listening to you, Sherry, it reminds me of some sort of common experiences that I've had as well. So I was born here in the United States. My father's Korean, first-generation immigrant, but my mother is American, and they met here after he arrived in the United States. And and while as a family, we moved around a fair amount, uh, but it was all within the United States, born in Utah, spent some time in Texas, moved several times between Southern and Northern California. But so you have a bit of a, a switch in terms of the different feel of different parts of our country. But I do think it was really more growing up in America, often in suburbs. My dad uh, had a career at Chevron. And so we were close in many of our homes to where they had headquarters in a relatively diverse environment of peers and friends, but having very clearly aspects of Korean heritage uh, woven into our family life. And while I didn't, I don't have the language, I can't boast the language <laughs> skills that you have, despite my father's uh, most valiant efforts, I do think that I grew up with a consciousness, if you will, of different cultures, the different dynamics. You spoke about hierarchy, sort of awareness of generational differences among, uh, you know, your cousins in, as a Korean versus your aunts and uncles or your grandparents, as well as some of the other dynamics, you know, between Asian cultures that I saw sort of over the mm. course of my childhood with my father, very much a Korean nationalist, having grown up as someone right. who experienced the Korean War and the devastation firsthand, in effect, as a, as a displaced individual fleeing the violence and the views that he had, you know, both towards the North. And then something we read about from time to time in the press here, you know, the perspectives of a Korean, from a historical perspective, the views of the other dominant powers in Northeast Asia, China and Japan, and the experiences that my father brought with him of, of, of history, of having you know, been mm. under the rule of both Japan and China. And I have, I have those sort of personal memories that draw to these larger dynamics that you know, still are, are relevant today, but it's a background that I've I cherish and I value and I've come to recognize the importance of. Your father had an amazing experience coming to the United States, right? You told me that he was actually mm -hmm. on a boat. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about that experience and perhaps how those stories uh, coming from him impacted the way that you see Asia. No, thanks, Sherry. Yeah, it's in some ways our own tale of the American dream as uh, through immigration. My father arrived in the early 60s. He was one of eight, eight children, the first to leave the family, a bit of a, a maverick, if you will. And it was as a result of a program that was jointly sponsored 
by the Korean government and the United States State Department. And through a competition around knowledge of U.S. history and English, he and one other South Korean citizen were able to come to the United States via a U.S. naval vessel that was bringing troops home who were deployed in South Korea for Christmas in the early 60s. And he arrived, as, as you might imagine, you know, if we, we've read about these stories, there are many uh, many people have recounted them. He arrived in the United States at the port of Oakland with, you know, somewhere between thirty and fifty dollars to his name, having having lost the luggage en route that had an additional several hundred dollars sewed into it, but that went the wayside somewhere on the on the voyage, and he managed to find his way through a bachelor's degree, a master's degree. PhD, a career at Chevron, three kids who all oh, wow. have been able to go on. And I'm, I'm sort of the, the laggard here as both of my sisters have PhDs. And, <laughs> you know, it's, it's shaped me, Sherry, in a way, in many ways, but, you know, it gives me an understanding of the connection between how the United States interacts with the world how it has consequences here at home, the connection between you know what we do in our government here around what what's really seen as domestic policy and the intersection with international relations. And that at the end of the day, in many respects, whether it's education and cultural programs, like what my father went through 60, 60 some odd years ago, to decision to use force and deploy troops, there's an individual and human aspect to everything. And I think that has, I've tried to carry that with me in the different jobs and opportunities that I've been lucky to have over the course of my career. I think something that you said is so important that you know, you see all of those things in your life and then uh, which kind of takes you to foreign policy. And then you understand that connection between all of these things that happen at a very macro level, at a very high level and how that affects your daily life. And I think one of the things about people is that perhaps they're not able to make the connection in their daily lives. Why these conversations about some faraway country in Asia matters to people here in the United States, just living their daily lives. And I think just having this podcast and being able to talk about all of those issues and how they actually connect to everything that happens in your life here in America, I think, I think that will be a very important part of what we do. And to that, I want to ask you why, um, what made you choose the career that you chose? Because you also had a very diverse career, right? We, you were in national security, you were at the Pentagon, you were also working in Congress. What led you to all of those different paths? And perhaps what skills did you learn from all of them? Well, I've always been drawn to international relations. It's, it's what I've gravitated towards. It's sort of the instinctive interest that I prioritized, if you will, from, you know, from my time in undergraduate, you know, when I chose my classes and it, it through a bit of happenstance, it, it ended up being where I had my first job as a, a very low 
low ranking, you know, junior staffer for U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein for two years. And, you know, your career is your, your professional trajectory is really a combination and an amalgamation of many decisions and specific choices you make along the way. And what I've learned is that you sometimes just need to trust your instincts and go with where you you naturally feel you gravitate towards. And so, you know, I, I studied, I had an opportunity to a master's degree in public policy, and then I embarked, as you noted, on a, a what ultimately became almost a 20-year career in the U.S. government. And I've had the opportunity to work at the State Department, the Pentagon, the National Security Council at the White House, and uh, the U.S. Senate for a number of years. And my background is really more as a generalist in U.S. national security and international affairs. Like many people who who worked during this period, I've spent as much time focused in thinking about the Middle East, about conflicts in the Middle East, about the challenges we've faced there over you know more than 20 years of war, but then also the strategic challenges we've faced from an adversary in the Middle East, Iran. And so, you know, I've had a a world perspective that ultimately has been relatively global. And, you know, as we look back over the last 10 to 12 years, what I see is that the evolution of the U.S. focus that was a bit hard to detect years ago, but, you know, I think was put into the frame under President Obama of a pivot or rebalance and has continued with the emergence of China. And I know we'll, you will get into this, the the real focus on Asia. I've seen a, a shift in what I did, and it's really given me a global perspective as I think about the Indo-Pacific. And I'm, I'm terrifically excited because the former co-host, Kurt Campbell, used to say, that the history of the 21st century uh, will be written in Asia. And I think that the conversation will embark upon here again to explore the, the vivid dimensions of the Indo-Pacific and not just about the China-US rivalry, but the dynamics and the idiosyncrasies and nuances of the many countries that make up Asia, I think will just create a, an exceptionally dynamic conversation. Mm. I think that's very important, right? When you talk about the vivid dynamics and the different parts of Asia as well. And I think even before we got started on this podcast, I mentioned that I would really like to explore the very different facets, different mm-hmm. cultures, societies, economies that Asia represents, because A lot of the times when we talk about Asia, we tend to focus on China. And that's not surprising given the China-US rivalry and how big China is, their recovery story after the pandemic, their growth before the pandemic. So it tends to dominate even our news cycle. But I believe that it's very, very important to take a look at the other countries, economies, regions, even within Asia that brings so much color to to the geopolitical landscape right now. So when you talk about China, you also have to consider the multiple dynamics between Northeast Asia, how Mm -hmm. the different perhaps wartime histories, the trade relationships between 
China, South Korea, Japan work into the equation. Then you also have to think about the 10 member ASEAN nations and how they play into the equation as well. And then you have economies like Taiwan that all of a sudden have become uh, very visible because mm -hmm. of this other China-US rivalry, global shortage of semiconductors. And then all of a sudden, uh, the spotlight seems to be on Taiwan and their manufacturing abilities with Taiwan semiconductors being at the center of it. There is such a diversity and incredible, interesting stories in Asia that need to be told. And and Sherry, let me let me turn the tables and ask a couple questions that that tie in with your perspectives and everything you see and hear as the anchor for Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. You bring in any number of guests to interview, and it's a cross-section that's exceptionally fascinating that spans geopolitics, the national security, but also to your point that you just made, business, the flows of finance, the impact of technology. And these are some of the areas that have really frankly emerged and I think are at, at the forefront, the vanguard of the challenges we face, but also the opportunities. And if, if you might just expand on that a little bit, perhaps just to tie in with some of the things you might have heard from recent guests, you know, this question of technology in my, in, in my view, I think presents uh, one of the biggest challenges, but also the opportunities for a range of countries as we think about values and interests. But do you hear and see that as well as you, as, as guests come in, and as you probe and explore different facets and, and topics with them? I think because we have a very diverse lineup of investors that come through our shows uh, that follow the markets. When we talk about this pandemic and post-pandemic world where you have such a high focus on technologies to make life easier as we're doing this through Zoom or through work at home, remote situations. What I hear a lot is about the opportunities in, in these tech companies across Asia. And we're talking, obviously, we saw this huge rally in tech shares here in the United States. But it's also a similar story with those tech companies and perhaps some of those companies that we haven't really heard about across Asia. And not only China, not only the Alibabas and Tencents, but also mm -hmm. uh, smaller companies in, in, in Taiwan, in, in South Korea. Japan uh, has been another focus recently because of the cyclical uh, rally that we've seen there with the recovery and growth story after the pandemic. But when you bring in the geopolitical angle here, of course, you always have to think about the dynamics between China and Taiwan. You have to think about uh, even the dynamics between South Korea and, and Japan. We know that South Korea and Japan has had issues ranging from wartime history to trade and recently they've had export controls against each other and how that's affected their own uh, manufacturing industries and i think in that sense it's so important to zoom out and consider the dynamics also from the american angle because when we had all of these tensions between japan and south korea they worsened during the previous administration when there really wasn't a U.S. president stepping in and trying to mediate between these uh, two of America's biggest allies. So these are some of the stories that we follow at Bloomberg. 
And it's been fascinating to see the trade relationship, economic relationship overlaid with the geopolitical dynamics that is Asia in relationship to not only the United States, but perhaps even Latin American countries. And I draw from my own background when I look at China's growing presence in Latin America in the last few years, Chinese banks becoming uh, the largest lenders for these Latin American countries. And it all, I feel, plays into also perhaps one narrative that, Rex, and you might know better about the importance of these alliances and the U.S. presence in all of these different regions. Yeah, no, Sherry, look, I I couldn't agree with you more. There's an incredible dynamism right now, I believe, in the, broadly speaking, the trends and opportunities that are economic, commercial, and technology in their makeup. And and I do think that we're seeing a reorientation and expansion, and I would argue innovation and entrepreneurship now that actually I think is quite exciting. And I'll just give you one sort of headline example. And, and that is from a few weeks ago, we had a convening of the, a virtual convening of the four heads of state from India, the United States, Australia, and Japan, the so-called quad grouping of countries. And significant in and of itself to have the four leaders meet for the first time. But what I found fascinating is that the signature agreement among the four countries was an agreement that U.S. vaccine technology to combat COVID-19 would be licensed for production by Indian manufacturers and financed by all four countries for distribution in Southeast Asia and perhaps other parts of the world. And in my mind, that kind of innovative approach that tries to identify, you know, enabling initiatives that countries can coalesce around, I think we will hopefully see more of that. And I think it's a, an area that we will want to continue to explore in, in all its different facets and perhaps in other industries. As you noted, we've had a, a real focus on emerging technologies, critical uh, manufacturing capabilities. And I think we could see different permutations, different collections of countries coming together in ways that seek to enhance and augment the resilience and the viability of the research and development and the supply chain in those industries. I think it's an area that perhaps might be more consequential, candidly, Mm -hmm. than what some have viewed historically as the defense and security dimensions of uh, sort of U.S. interests in this part of the world, because I think it carries an opportunity for us to expand the dialogue and expand partnerships. Of course, we have treaty allies, but I think really the question is, frankly, more of uh, partnership and shared interest. And that spans well beyond sort of alliances per se. And it becomes even more important now, I feel, for American policymakers when you have this so-called 
vaccine diplomacy happening, coming from China, coming from Russia or India as well, right? I talk to my parents every day and I ask them, when can you guys get vaccinated? And there's nothing, there's nothing but Russian and Chinese mm-hmm. vaccines. And even that is in very short supply, it's not available to everyone. But during this pandemic, we have seen these concerted efforts to attract uh, potential partners around the world. And whether it's uh, through China's Sinopharm or Sinovac vaccines mm-hmm. or Russia Sputnik V or or even India that has offered AstraZeneca Oxford vaccines mm-hmm. to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And you see this uh, growing relationship between these uh, regions of the world. And then you have to if you're an American policymaker, you have to pause and think, what is this going to look like post-pandemic? And uh, interesting anecdote coming from Paraguay and mm-hmm. the foreign minister there said something in the likes of, we ask these strategic allies for proof of their love, because of course, Paraguay has had uh, this enduring relationship with Taiwan. Before holding hands, you have to at least take us to the movies. So this post-pandemic landscape will be very consequential. And this is something that we need to keep a close eye on and hopefully discuss during the Tea Leaves podcast, what the world will look like after we're over this pandemic. You're absolutely right, Sherry. And there's never the opportunity to go backwards when it comes to this question of global events and international relations. I will tell you, Listening to you on that anecdote, it reminds me listening to folks as uh, when we were in the transition period after our election uh, last November, but before Joe Biden was sworn in as president, I would get the question of uh, some concern, frankly, that the Joe Biden administration would go back to policies, priorities, approaches from his time serving under President Obama. And my response always, always started with, there's no going backwards. The the world has changed. We are four years from the time President Obama left office and consequential events have happened, um, a number of them. And perhaps the most important, the most shaping globally, to your point, has been the pandemic. And we will emerge out of this over the coming months into a world that looks entirely different. And one of the big challenges that I think we have faced has been this question of global goods related to the pandemic. And at the center of that is vaccines and the role that countries, Russia, China, United States, India, others may or may not be playing or may or maybe weren't playing in terms of trying to assume a leadership role in providing what is in effect a global good, because ultimately we will only emerge out of the pandemic with some assurity once all countries have been able to get their arms around the spread of this virus. And I'm hopeful that we are seeing a a reemergence of leadership by countries like India, the United States, others that have a shared view of the international order, and that it will begin to present itself more and more. Time will tell 
We'll explore this and other facets as we step through the podcast in the weeks and months ahead. And I'm particularly fascinated, Sherry, to to bring in a dimension that I don't think we've really fully appreciated here, and that is the, the interconnections between Asia on one side of the Pacific, and not the United States, just the United States on the other, but Latin America and and their dimension in the Indo-Pacific. And I'm really looking forward to to hearing perspectives, having guests on that bring on perspectives that introduce the dimensions there. Because it's really trying to connect the world, right? Every story out there as unique and separate as they seem, they're all connected. This morning, I woke up to copper rallying to a two-year high. And then you think, well, copper is rallying because you know uh, you have demand coming from China, perhaps a Biden infrastructure plan in order to build stuff. But also at the same time, China just said that the source is now saying that China will be starting to curb lending and that perhaps making some of that rally fade. So it seems that every story is connected. Recently, I just did a story about how pulp prices were going up. And if you know that hardwood pulp made for uh, using toilet paper, and that's because there's so much demand out of China that they had to raise prices in, in toilet paper, Scott Toilet Paper by Kimberly Clark. So all of these stories, as remote as they seem, are very connected. And now on a more serious tone, though, going back to the narrative that all of these stories perhaps seem very far. There are things that affect us, affect Americans every day, right? This whole rivalry between China and the United States, the hostilities against uh, Beijing, now sort of morphing into hostilities against Asians, Asian Americans in the United States. Uh, these recent attacks that we've seen, because of very harsh rhetoric that's in a way misguided rhetoric, derogatory rhetoric towards them um, during the course of the pandemic that has made this uh, a very tragic and, and horrible situation, what's happening here in the U.S. Sherry, this is um, disconcerting at many levels. As you know, personally, it's disconcerting. It runs against, I think, here in the United States, who we aspire to be, who we are. And I think that the hope, I have the hope that as more and more people speak out, as people step up, as people seek to recognize what has been happening before the pandemic, but the pandemic has brought a new spotlight to this, this type of hatred and violence. And I think this should have no place. Uh, this kind of hatred or violence against any ethnicity, any heritage um, in our country. And it's troubling. My, as I said, my hope is that voices and leadership will help lift us up again in mm. the, the time ahead of us. And just as we started this podcast, is that hope of uh, a renewal of spring coming mm -hmm. really uh, where we should end this conversation because it's really looking towards the future and hoping that perhaps some of the conversations that we are going to have on this podcast will also help enlighten some of those on those issues, bring new ideas and perspectives 
and try to bring some good into the world, right? I mean, we've had a tough year, so <laughs> let's hope now for the best. Uh, spring is coming. It's a new year. And Raxon, thank you so much for this discussion today. I mean, that's all the time that we have for now, but hopefully we will be able to continue these very important conversations as we continue to have guests from diverse backgrounds, interesting stories on this podcast. Jerry, thank you. As I said, I'm incredibly excited about our partnership. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access this full video of our conversation at theasiagroup.com. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.